Welcome to First Baptist Church of Terrytown, sharing God's love and hope around the world. Our prayer is that your life is transformed as you hear the Word of God preached today. This is a rough time to be a Christian. First of all, we have the self-inflicted wounds, right? We, we've been so obsessed as a Christian culture with, with celebrity and gifting and the way things look on the outside rather than internal character, that we have a, a crisis of leadership where we have all sorts of scandals, abuse scandals, and abuse of all kinds and varieties. And, uh, and it's, it's just like, oh, who's, who's going to get fired today? Who's going to get fired this week? It's, it's heartbreaking. It's difficult. Uh, we also have uh, the scandal of, of uh, the evangelical mind where really we have over really the last few decades, we've, we've adopted this weird idea that we can transform the culture through politics, that politics is the best way to transform culture. And politics are important, of course. But, but when we take the gospel of Jesus Christ that changes our hearts, literally changes our hearts, and then we're like, yeah, you know what? Yeah, that powerful gospel. Let's instead work on politics because those are so effective. Let's put our trust in changing the governmental system because we all know how effective and efficient government is, right? Ah, we have self-inflicted wounds. And I've talked to many of you. It hurts. It's hard to see brothers and sisters, leaders in the church, choose to abandon the gospel in, in favor of, of changing hearts and minds through the political system. That doesn't work. But then... It's not even the self-inflicted wounds. It's the changing of the culture that hurts us. The changing of the culture that makes it difficult to be a Christian. I mean, as, as Christians, we have for 2,000 years held to the same ethical and moral standards, and even longer with the same ethical and moral standards that were found in the Old Testament, that Judaism perpetuated and, and gave us and taught us. And, and we've held to those. And now, because we hold to those ethical standards, People now all of a sudden say, oh, you're bigots. Wait, what? Right? And especially in the area of sex, but in other areas too. We say, we have believed these for thousands of years. Oh, no, but if you don't change it right now, if you don't change your ethical and moral standards, you're a hater. Wait, no, how is it possible that we're holding these high standards and you're saying that we're actually immoral by holding the high standards? No, no, you are. And worse than that, as Christians, we believe that everyone was made in God's image. God loves us all. However, we do believe in the exclusivity of the gospel, that Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And, and, and that Jesus is the only way. And by, by, by sharing the gospel to say we all need to repent of our sins and follow after Jesus, guess what? You're also called a bigot for that in these days too. It's really hard. We're coming and saying there is a gospel of hope. You don't have to be enslaved to your sin any longer. And we get called bigots. There's trouble that happens because of that. And that's not to say anything for the personal problems that we all have in our lives right now. So in the midst of all of that, all the difficulties, why should we praise God? Why should we praise God when life is hard, when, when we're not culturally favorable? Oh my goodness. And in fact, it used to be that it was culturally advantageous to be a part of a church. And now things have shifted so much that that it's not just not culturally advantageous to be part of a church, but if you're part of a church, it's like, hey, what'd you do on Sunday? I went to church, right? Not, like, it's, it's now a liability in our culture. It's not seen as a positive. It's seen as a weirdness. It's hard. 
Why in the midst of all these hardships and your personal ones should we praise God? Why should we worship God? Why should we, we glorify Him in all things? That might have been the question that the Ephesians had in Ephesus as Paul began his letter to them. Paul is writing this letter from a Roman prison. He is imprisoned for the sake of the gospel. He had planted this church or helped plant this church. And now he is writing a letter of encouragement to them. Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 1. says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from our God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So he starts off, he says this is to the saints, and the saints in the Bible means people who've trusted Jesus. So there are alive saints, there's dead saints, anyone, who, anyone who's trusted in Jesus is a saint. If you've trusted Jesus this morning, you are a saint. So, and kids, next time, you know, you're getting in trouble with your parents, say, I am a saint. And then parents, you can say, yes, and you need sanctification, which is why you're in trouble. But we're all, every believer is a saint. And he starts it off in verse 3, blessed be or praise be or let's worship the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. This was probably a really weird thing for Paul to start off with. When he planted the church in Ephesus, when he shared the gospel in Ephesus, first the Jewish people came to faith in Jesus Christ. But then shortly after that, so many Gentiles, non-Jewish people, began to believe in the gospel. They believed that Jesus died for their sins and rose again, that through Jesus' shed blood, they could have forgiveness of their sins, that they could have a right relationship with God, that they could know that they know that they know that they have eternal life, and when they die, they will get that eternal life through Jesus. It was an amazing message within that context, but because of that message, you have to realize with Ephesus, it caused problems. Ephesus was the major number one commercial site in all of Asia Minor. It was the crown jewel in Asia of the Roman Empire as far as economics. It was also a cultural place that everyone came to gather and, and they came to worship. There was multiple gods there. 50 plus gods were, were worshipped there, but, but the main one was Artemis of Ephesus. And they had a whole story with that. And this religious worship was heavily tied into the economy of Ephesus. So much so, there were silversmiths that were making all kinds of money because they would make icons of Artemis and, and icons and, and trinkets and, and medallions. And the scroll writers, they would make these uh, magical scrolls that they would write. If you needed healing or some sort of magical spell, you'd come to Ephesus. If, uh, if you wanted to have some great worship experience, you would come to Ephesus. And because there was 50 plus religions, it, it, they all got along. Everyone just said, eh, you do this, you do that, we're going to be fine, everything's good. The only group up until the Christians that, that bucked this trend were the Jewish people in their synagogue, but the Jewish people didn't evangelize at that time. They just stayed in their synagogue and let everyone else do what they were going to do. Christianity comes along, and all of a sudden, as Paul is preaching the gospel, people are getting rid of the silver. They're not buying silver anymore. They're burning the scrolls in the street. And so much so, the silversmiths and the scroll makers started a riot in the city of Ephesus because of the exclusivity of the gospel. We all get along. All the religions get along. And all of a sudden, you guys come along and say, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the light. 
and people are walking away from our means to make a lot of money. And there was a riot. Eventually, city officials quelled the riot because they saw the good character of the Christians. But the tension never went away. They were a pluralistic society. We all get along. We're all able to coexist happily together. And you guys come along. And you say, there's a better way. Tension, tension, tension. And amidst that tension, Paul starts off his letter and he says, blessed be the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. Praise him. I praise him. You should praise him too. Ephesians. Why? Sounds familiar to us today. Why do you praise God in the midst of the tension, in the midst of the hardship? The global ones, the personal difficulties, why should we praise him? Verse 4. Paul says this. He says, even as he, God, chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and on earth. So Paul starts it off. Why are we praising him? Praise him because he chose you to be holy. That word holy means set apart. It means different. Ephesians, you're, you're struggling. You're having a hard time. Your culture doesn't like you right now. But praise God, he chose you to be different. He chose you to be set apart. He chose you to know that you know that you know that you have eternal life, that your sins are forgiven, that there's a God in heaven who knows your name and loves you. He chose you. He not only chose you to be set apart, he chose you to be blameless before him. Your sins are forgiven through Jesus Christ. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Christ Jesus. Predestined us to be sons and daughters. Adopted us. I have to get on my soapbox here for a little bit, and you'll have to forgive me for this, but this is a huge pet peeve that I think destroys our biblical understanding. In the Western world, we have a terrible understanding of adoption. We have jokes. I mean, one of the billion-dollar movie, you know, has a stupid throwaway line joke about, well, he's adopted. As if to say, if you're adopted, you're not really part of the family. As if you're adopted, that you're a secondary member of the family. That's not true. In the Bible, that's absolutely not true. And if we have that belief as Americans, as Westerners, that belief will, will shade our entire understanding of this text. When God says he adopts you, you're like, yeah, you know, he tolerates me. No. In the ancient world, if you are adopted, it meant you had the full rights of a son or daughter in that family. Even the pagan Romans understood that. There are stories of emperors adopting people and that next person becoming the emperor. Even if they get it and we don't get it, oh my goodness. When Paul says you are adopted by God the Father and he calls you a son or he calls you a daughter, that means you are a son, you are a daughter. You don't have to put the qualifier adopted before it. Your son or daughter of God Almighty through Jesus Christ. To the praise of his glorious grace, grace which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption. We've been changed, transformed. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace 
which he lavished upon us. And he's given us wisdom insight. What's the wisdom insight? Paul says it's that God has a plan to make, remake the new heaven and the new earth so that all things are under Christ, so that we're no longer living in this world of sin filled with war and famine and plague and hatred and anger. No, we get to follow Jesus Christ and things are the way they finally ought to be. That's his plan. So Paul starts this letter off telling the Ephesians, you should praise God because he chose you to be holy. He chose you to be holy. Now, I know he uses the word predestination uh, a lot here, and that's a huge question and a huge thought, but, but the main purpose of Paul's use of predestination is not, forgive me for this comment, what a bunch of old white guys decided to think about 400 years ago. That's, that's, that, it's Western thought that goes there. This is an ancient Near East text. Paul was a Jewish person. He was uh, more ancient Near East in his thinking than anything else. His main purpose in this text to talk about predestination isn't to say, well, how did that come about? How do we have free will or was it predestined? Could I have gotten away from it? No. His main purpose here is to say, God knows you and God chose you. You're not wandering. You didn't like randomly say, I guess I'm going to be a Christian. Okay. And then when life gets hard, you're like, man, maybe I made a bad decision. Paul's saying, don't, don't ever think that. You're not wandering a random road that you chose. God himself has directed every decision in your life to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. God has directed you. He chose you. He knows you. He has a plan for you. Be encouraged. Be encouraged. And of course, you know, we take this to, to be a sign of real, uh, angst when we were like, what does that mean, predestined? Paul's saying, nah, 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 get rid of that, get rid of that. He knows you intimately. He has a plan for you. So you praise him. You praise him because he has chosen you. It's kind of like if, uh, if you've ever seen like a stage magician. Anyone ever go see a stage magician? Those are fun. Right, and uh, oh, I saw one at your guys' place just recently. And you know, the worst thing you can do if you don't want to get on the stage is sit in the front row because they're like, "I need a volunteer from the audience," and everyone's like, "Ooh!" and pick the person going, "Ooh!" No, they pick you, who's trying not to make eye contact. You, and you're like, "What?" You. No, no. <laughs> and so you go up, and there's trepidation going up on stage. But there's a huge difference between being called up, invited up on the stage. Oh, I could do that right now. Um. <laughs> Everyone breaks eye contact. <laughs> there's a huge difference between the trepidation of coming up on, on stage when you're invited and just saying, eh, I think I'm going to go up on the magic stage now. Uninvited, right? doop a doop a doo that's what Paul is trying to show us here. Yes, it is difficult to be a Christian. Yes, it is hard, but, but you've been called. You didn't just randomly come up on the stage. You've been invited. Or those of you who uh, participated in weddings before, right? You get invited to do a scripture reading or a poetry reading or, or to help out in the wedding in some way or, or to walk down the aisle, right? There's a huge difference and there's trepidation when you're walking up on stage to read that scripture or, or you're uh, giving a speech at the reception. There's trepidation, there's fear, but there's a huge difference between that and rushing the stage to say, you know, kind of like a Kanye thing, like, hold on, this is a great wedding, but I just got to say... That person in the row down there is the most beautiful person I've ever seen, right? All right, let's get back to your wedding here. <laughs> Huge difference. Paul is saying, 
you didn't just rush the stage of Christianity and say, yeah, okay, that sounds good. Uh Uh-uh. We love him because he first loved us. As C.S. Lewis pointed out in the Chronicles of Narnia, you called out to him because he was calling to you. And you answered that call. So we praise him. We praise him because we are known. We praise him because we are chosen. Paul's image that he gives us here is I, I've, uh, I've tried to, uh, I'll, I'll, whenever I travel, I try to do it as cheaply as possible. Anyone else like that? Especially when flying, right? I remember I was talking to a young guy once. They were, they were going across the seas, and he's like, well, I'm going to save up, and I'm, uh, I'm going to uh, go first class. And I was like, <laughs> you can't afford first class. He's like, oh, yes, yes, I will. My parents are going to be flying just economy. I'm going to fly first class. And I was like, you know the difference between that? He's like, yeah, a few hundred bucks. <laughs> no. So I try and fly as cheaply as possible. The first time I went over to Vietnam for uh, missions, I, uh, I wanted to go as cheap as possible. I found the cheapest ticket possible. It was $500 less than everything else, but it had a 13-hour layover in Hong Kong. 13 hours. And you know what it's like being in a different place you've never been before, and you're just in the airport, and there's all sorts of people around you, and you're tired, and you want to sleep. So you, like, get your bag, and you hold it, and then, like, try and fall asleep, hoping that if someone, like, messes with your stuff, you'll feel the movement, and then you'll, like, wake up. Oh, it's horrible. On the way back, I was with one of the other teachers, and he travels so much, he gets flying perks. And he said, oh, I have perks with this airline, and I can bring a guest into the Admiral Lounge. Anyone ever been to the Admiral Lounge before? Come on. That is not, that is not like sitting in all those rows and chairs spread out. Oh, my goodness. They come in. They welcome you. You use the bathroom, and someone comes immediately behind you and cleans the whole thing. You never have the fear of a dirty bathroom. You eat. They have food set out for you. You don't have to pay for it. It's amazing. You can set your feet up. You can go to sleep. No one wants to steal your stuff because everyone there has better stuff than you already. It's amazing. That's what Paul is saying. We praise God because he's chosen us. Unlike the rest of the world that is uncertain about the future, they don't know what happens when you die. They're not sure if they're forgiven. They, they, they're, they're enslaved to their own sin and they don't even know it. We have been chosen by God. We know that God loves us. We know that God cares for us. We know that he has a plan. We know that he has a purpose. And so we praise him, even in the hardships. Now, someone might have the objection and say, well, you Christians think you're really special, don't you? And I think that's a valid objection. Here's the thing. I don't think we should think that we're special because we're not. I am not special. I'm called special by God. There is a difference. There's a huge difference between saying, we are special, and saying, we are called special by God. We're not special. There's nothing amazing about us. God didn't look at me and say, wow, that Nathan, look how much good work he's going to do. No. He loved me because he loved me. He loved me in spite of myself. He loves you in spite of yourselves. There's nothing special about us, but God calls us special. It's an amazing difference because that keeps me humble, but also fills me with confidence that the God of the universe has called me, has a purpose for my life, and wants to work through me here. We're not special, but God calls us special. Humbling and confidence. And so we praise God because he's chosen us to be holy in Christ Jesus.
But Paul gives us a second reason, too, in this text. There's another reason he tells the church and us why we should praise God. Verse 11, Paul writes, In him we have obtained an inheritance and have been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Why should we praise God? Why should the church in Ephesus praise God? Why should we praise God today? It's because he has given us the Holy Spirit as a guarantee of a future inheritance. Let's see what he says here. He says, we've obtained this inheritance. And inheritance isn't something you have right now. It's something you're going to get. He's saying, have him be predestined. Again, there's that word again, predestined. God has a plan. You're not going to lose it. He's already out of a plan. He's, he's, he's the best planner. Unlike you and I, his plans will never be stopped. He's got this plan and he's had this plan according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ, that's the Jewish people, Right? So Paul and the others, the gospel came first to the Jew and then to the Gentile, as Scripture tells us. So we who believe first, the purpose of him who works all things, so that we who are the first in verse 12 to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, you Gentiles, you non-Jewish people, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. When you trust Jesus, God the Holy Spirit, and it's important, oh, I have to point this out too. This is a great Trinitarian text. We see God the Father, we see Jesus Christ, we see the Holy Spirit. It's important to point out here, it says when in uh, verse 13, we're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance? Paul does not say it is the guarantee of our, right? The Holy Spirit is a person, the third person of the Trinity, right? So, so he is known. I know this is probably splitting hairs with some of you, but, but the Holy Spirit is not a, a force. The Holy Spirit is a person. And God the Holy Spirit dwells within everyone who has trusted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. He gives us wisdom. He gives us insight. He gives us comfort. He gives us direction when we ask and when we submit to the will of God. We don't always feel God the Holy Spirit, but if you've trusted in Jesus, he is always there. And the power of the Holy Spirit is always there. And Paul says, as amazing as that is to have the gift of God himself dwelling within you in the person of God, the Holy Spirit, that's just a down payment. That's just a small fraction of your future inheritance in Jesus Christ. Uh, let's be a little interactive here. What is, maybe I can do this, there, what is the best inheritance you've ever heard of someone getting. And if it's fictional, I'll let it be fictional. You have to tell me it's fictional, though. A house. It's pretty amazing. How much money? Millions. A what? A mansion. Yes. Pretty amazing. Anyone else? Any other? Anyone can top millions of dollars in inheritance? 
It's like the American dream, right? That like somehow you'll magically inherit from some long lost relative. Real estate. Oh yeah, like not just, a, oh, come on, one place? No, the whole place, everything, the whole block, several blocks. Yeah, those are amazing things to get. And according to Paul, according to all the scriptures, what we will inherit in the new heaven and the new earth is far greater than any of those things. Far greater than millions of dollars, far greater than mansions, far greater than houses, far greater than multiple mansions, far greater than real estate in Manhattan, entire building. The inheritance you have in Jesus Christ is far greater. But for now, Paul says, we have God the Holy Spirit. So imagine that, uh, continuing with the uh, rich uh, relative, imagine you have a rich uncle and your rich uncle buys you an amazing luxury car. Somebody help me out. What's a really good luxury car you'd want right now? A what? All I hear is echoing. Lamborghini. I could hear that one. All right, fine. You inherit a Lamborghini. What color is it? Yellow. Whoa, wow. Good point. Bonus points. Bonus points for not saying red. Uh, yellow Lamborghini. You get the thing. Your uncle says, pick out the color. You say yellow. He says, that's interesting. And uh, we'll have it brought right to your house. So they bring it to the house on a flatbed. They don't drive it. That's not what you do with a Lamborghini. They bring it off the flatbed. You're like, oh. And he says he's going to pay for the insurance and all your oil changes too. So we're good. And, uh, and, and you're like, oh, this is amazing. And right as it hits the pavement, all of a sudden, from around the corner, some kid goes right into it. Ah. All right, it's only surface damage. You know, you got to take the bumper off the ground, but we got to bring it in to have it repaired. Okay. So you guys know a guy who can work on the Lamborghini. You bring it in, and they say, hey, we'll give you a loaner car. Do they give you another Lamborghini? No, what do they give you? <laughs> a Honda what? Maybe a, maybe a Dodge Neo from 1994. <laughs> right? They, get, like they, don't give you, they don't give you the top of the line. You got to drive this thing around. Now, look, you have two choices right now. You can either say, okay, I accept this vehicle, and thank goodness I have something to drive me from point A to point B for the rest of the three weeks that it's going to take to do repairs. Or you could say, oh, you got to be kidding me and be angry as you drive this thing around the whole time. Ah. I think that's the image Paul's given us here as Christians. We have God, the Holy Spirit, who dwells within us, and he is an incredible blessing. He gets us from point A to point B. He comforts us. But the Holy, having the Holy Spirit dwell within us is nothing compared to seeing God face to face one day. It's nothing compared to that glorious day in Revelation when God himself will wipe away every tear from our eyes. It's nothing compared to the mansions that Jesus said he is preparing for us, which I think is a metaphor because our brains can't fathom the beauty of the inheritance we have. It's like, yeah, driving around the Honda, not as cool as Lamborghini, but you know what? You have the Honda, that's the down payment. You know something better is coming along. Okay, a little more interaction. What is something good God has done for you? I want you to be, don't tell me salvation. I know that. I, I, I just told you that like 20 times already. <laughs> what is something good concrete that God has specifically done for your life? Given you children. He's given us cats. I'm very happy for the one. 
house, place to live, yeah. What else? Oggy doggy. Grandpa's dog, not mine. Don't worry anyone who's worried I have a dog over there. It's not going to happen. <laughs> what else? Hmm? Drums? Yeah. Food? It's giving us food. What else? And you mean that in a physical sense. Ronnie was dead. He was alive. God ever, like, answer? I mean, see, he doesn't always, and he's not always obligated to answer our intervene-for-me medically prayers, but has God ever intervened for anyone medically here? Anyone? Yeah. It's amazing. Like, and that's, that's your story, right? Nobody else has that specific story. I know for me, if you want to know more details later, you can ask me after service uh, to, to mimic what Jen said, but I'll tell you, all three of my kids are miracle children. The fact that they are in our lives are all three miracles, and there is no one that could tell me or anyone else involved with their stories that that wasn't the hand of God that delivered those children into our hands for us to raise. And according to Paul, all the good things God has done for us in this world, those are a shadow. Those are a shadow of the goodness that's coming. And so Paul, he's talking to these Ephesians who I'm sure feel, oh, they're stressed, they're crushed, they're pressed, they're, they're oppressed, they're hated. And he's saying, but yet we still praise God because he's given us the Holy Spirit and that's just a down payment. There's something good coming. Don't ever get into this place to say, oh, this is it. Oh, I, you know, this is all there is. And life is so hard. Yeah, life is hard. It's going to get better. You have hope. Hope that the world doesn't have. So we praise God because he has given us the Holy Spirit as a down payment of the future inheritance we have. We're sealed by the promised Holy Spirit, verse 14, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Some of you are in here saying, like me, why can't I have it all now? Right? Like, you know, future inheritance. Come on, God, you own the cattle on a thousand hills. You've created all things. Why, why can't I have it all now? And, and there's, there's two reasons for that, I think. There's probably more than two. But one reason is what kind of relationship does God want to have with us? I think the main thing God's looking for us in our relationship with him is trust. If you want to please God, God is pleased by faith, by trust. He wants us to trust him. And if you gave it to us all now, eh, there's no more trust. I already have it, <laughs> right? He wants trust from us. But I think the other reason, and probably the bigger reason, is God hasn't finished rescuing all the people he's going to rescue. If we look at the entire story of, of the Bible, the world has fallen into sin. Everything has been corrupted. All of creation groans awaiting for Christ's second coming to be transformed. Everything is affected by sin. And Jesus came into the world, shed his blood, rose again, so that people could be rescued from their sins. All who trust in Jesus will be saved. And the reason God has not come and put an end to evil and an end of all of our suffering is because he's still rescuing other people. Because as soon as he brings about the solution, as soon as he brings about the new heaven and the new earth, that's over. No more getting in. 
And so right now, we do suffer so that more can be saved. Right now, we still live in a fallen, dark, horrible world so that others might come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ so that God can grow his family through the gospel of Jesus Christ. But in the meantime, we praise him because if you've trusted in Jesus, you know that you've been given the Holy Spirit as a guarantee of that future inheritance that's coming when King Jesus wipes every tear from our eyes. This is a rhetorical question. You don't have to answer it. But why does Paul praise God here? And why did the Holy Spirit inspire Paul to write this about praising God? Does God need our worship? Does God need our praise? Right. So then why does he do it? Why does he tell, like, so why does God inspire writers to tell us that we should praise God, right? If he doesn't need our praise, why does he tell us that we need to praise? You're going to see this quote a lot in my ministry here, and too bad. Uh, I read this in St. Augustine's City of God book, and he says this. He says, God has no need, not only of cattle or any other earthly and material thing, but even man's righteousness, and that whatever right worship is paid to God profits not him, man. Think about that. Augustine is saying, God doesn't need our worship. We need to worship God. God tells us to worship him, not because he needs our worship, but because we need to worship him. We need to be in a relationship with him. He doesn't need a relationship with us. He's God. He's self-sufficient. He needs for nothing. But he loves us, and he knows that we need everything. And more than anything else, we need him. And so he tells us to worship him. We've been created to worship. Everyone worships something. Everyone worships something, even if it's yourself. And God, in his loving kindness, in texts like this, say, worship me so you can have a right relationship with me, so you can grow in your relationship with me. Worship me. And so today, even in the midst of our difficulties, even in the midst of darkness, even in the midst of, of strife, we praise God. We praise God because he chose us to be holy in Jesus Christ. And we praise God because he's given us the Holy Spirit as a guarantee of our future inheritance. You were chosen to worship. Let's pray. Father, we're about to take communion together. And we're about to celebrate the Lord's Supper to be reminded that everything we have, this, this, this hope that we have, this future inheritance that we have, it has come through the shed blood of Jesus Christ because he died for us on the cross and rose again. We can have our sins forgiven. We can be adopted into your family. We can be called sons and daughters of you, Father God. And God, the Holy Spirit, you come and dwell within us. It is all because of the work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so, Father, I pray as we partake of the Lord's Supper today that this will be a reminder to praise you for the work that you have done through Jesus Christ, the work that you are doing through us, and the work you will do when King Jesus comes again to make all things new and to make all things right. Prepare our hearts. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.
Thank you for listening. If you'd like to learn more about the church or make an online donation, please visit us at fbcterrytown.org.